right, we're back. This is Horns Up, and I'm Peter. And I'm Anamesh. So as we promised in the last episode, we're back with a super heavy episode this time around. This week, we've got Jason Netherton from Misery Index. The American Death Metal Act have their new album out, Rituals of Power, and it kicks ass. Yup, and we'll be talking to Jason about it in a little while. But uh, before that, something happened to Agalog. What was it? Oh man, it was quite a bummer to read. So former Agalog um, and current Pilarion member John Hagum was thrown under the bus by his bandmates and several fans due to his racist comments on Facebook. Oh, okay. A quick Google search will give you the story so far. We're not going to discuss this here or go into detail with that. But here's what's interesting. It started out as a joke and was taken as such, but turned into a complete shitstorm much later. And of course, it depends on whom you want to believe at the end of the day. But from what I've read so far, John Hagam certainly doesn't think that he did anything wrong. What's your take on it, Animesh? Well, I'm not super clued into the exact um, post that John wrote because I haven't read that. I've avoided that. But the Aglock hatred suddenly is real. And that's what's kind of bugging me because it's coming back to the point of how do you separate the artist from the art, right? Because Aglock is not a one-person band. It's not like uh, Burzum, where Varg is the only face of Burzum, and Varg isn't apologetic about his views, so if you don't like his views, you might as well not listen to Burzum. In a band like Agalok, John was one of the members, and it's sad to see that the rest of the band has to take the brunt of what is foolishness and stupidity from his point of view. No, and I agree completely. I was quite conflicted and torn apart when I first saw the thing. But the way I look at it, uh, I don't know why it should taint the legacy of Agalots because Agalots was not one member. It was four members. Correct. And clearly, when you see the statements, I mean, agreed, they didn't, they broke up on not the most ideal situation. But, you know, it's evident again from their old statements and if you read their current statement. So I don't know why the other three have to bear the brunt for his stupidity. And again, if you read the statements of the Pilarion members, all of them have kind of left the band because of it. So it's clear where the issue lies. Um, but coming back to what you said, it becomes very hard for me as a listener to kind of listen to the music again. Again, the mantle, Ashes Against the Grain, are one of the best like American black metal albums or you know metal albums generally in the last 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. Completely agreed with you. It's not a case. Um, we it shouldn't sully their name or the band's legacy. I find it weird that people in this day and age are so easily offended. But then again, maybe I'm the one who's refusing to uh, see the situation for what it is. Maybe, maybe he does deserve this punishment, but should it be at the expense of what he's done originally or the kind of art that he has been responsible for? I'm not sure. It's, it's, I'm still a bit iffy on that entire point of how to separate the art from the artist. I think and uh, 
this is only my point of view. I definitely think that the art should be separated from the artist. And once you've created something, it's the result of a situation or living conditions or whatever it may be of that particular time frame. And if that person is sick in the head uh, while he did that, well, it did lead, lead him to create something which is art in some way. I don't know if I'm making sense. It's, it's getting increasingly tougher for me to keep drawing the line. It makes it definitely easier when the music is shitty. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it's, it's tough also for me. Sometimes it becomes, especially when it's a band that you're really passionate about or you really enjoy it Yeah, I would hate to hear a story of, I don't know, some Iron Maiden member, God forbid it ever happens. Or anything for that matter, man. Like, But you'll see, I've noticed a continuous trend in this for people who've been very active on social media in the last few years. This is kind of like continuously you keep hearing stuff like this and it's increasing at least in the last couple of years where band members on social media saying something stupid, uh, screenshots passing all around, backlash and it's been a recurring trend. So I'm not surprised as the backlash from all the fans but I don't know whether we should be prepared or what should we should do in the future, really. Let's just hope for the best. Um, we leave it upon you guys too, yeah? What, what do you guys think about this entire situation? And the larger question, which is, how do you separate art from the artist when the artist goes out and does something horribly, horribly wrong? How do you cope with it? Do let us know. Uh, we are on Twitter, at Hornsubpod. You can reach Peter at Trent Crusher. You can reach me at Asmoani. Um, I'd like to just quickly sum up my view again once. Uh, the music that we listen to is art and art will continue to remain subjective in terms of appreciation and enjoyment. When it comes to news and stories around the artist, there's always a little bit of salt thrown into the absolute facts. And weirdly enough, it's who controls the narrative that defines what the truth is. A concept of false truth does exist out there because... You know, you've heard stories of um, just musicians who were having a bad day and were rude to a fan because they just didn't feel up to signing another autograph or posing for a selfie. And hence that band uh, or that vocalist or whoever the musician is gets a bad rep. So you never know. Um, but that entire space of, you know, what the truth of the situation is actually... It's only getting murkier day by day and very weird segue, but it's very cool to hear Misery Index actually talk about this in their new album that's called Rituals of Power. Yeah, it was quite interesting also to hear what Jason had to say about it and the whole inspiration uh, about the album. Yep, Rituals of Power releases on March 8th and we have band founder, bassist, vocalist and lyricist Jason Netherton with us. He's joining us from Maryland, USA over Skype. Again, apologies for the slight shift in audio quality, but let's jump in straight to that conversation. So up right now, we have Jason Netherton from Misery Index. Jason, how are you doing, man? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for asking. All right, so let's uh, trace your roots. Uh, how did you discover heavy metal and what was its appeal to, at that time, your virgin ears? 
Well, I guess I was early uh, young teenager, uh, you know, growing up in the uh, late 1980s. And, um, and it just stumbled on my radar, uh, you know, from MTV. MTV was playing a lot of hard, hard rock at that time, you know, hair metal and stuff, Molly Crew and Dokken. And, and one afternoon they played a video by Iron Maiden. And that kind of like got me curious about, oh, what is this? This isn't, you know, the typical kind of like singing about decadence and booze and, and sex and all that. So it was like, well, I bought the record somewhere in time. And it was kind of from there, I just spiraled off into a quest of looking for other kinds of metal that had more meaning to it, uh, you know, a little bit more substance. Like, you know, of course, you find out about Iron Maid, I mean, uh, Metallica and Megadeth and the bigger ones, but I mean, it just, other bands resonated with me too, like uh, Sabbath from the UK, Fate's Warning, Holy Terror from uh, California, Coroner, all the noise records bands, thrash bands, Halloween, even that kind of stuff just exploded within the period of like, you know, two or three years. I was already immersed in the whole world and embracing it totally. And I didn't, I mean, I, I didn't think today would still be such a big part of my life, but I guess it was the beginning of a, lifelong kind of journey from there <laughs> i must say the fact that you mentioned mtv that's really interesting because um you were exposed to both the audio as well as the visuals uh which one got your jaws to drop was it only the audio was it the visuals or was, it, was it just a combination of both well i don't know how familiar with iron maiden but you know, at the time, MCV was playing a lot, like I said, Motley Crue and all this California hair metal stuff. And then, you know, it would be in the afternoon, they'd play like this, like 30 minutes of like hard rock. And one of the videos I showed was Iron Maiden's uh, video for Wasted Years, mm-hmm. which has a lot of imagery from their, you know, their singles with the, with the Eddie character and going through all this stuff. And it was just something a bit more like... You know, the fantasy of it all is, you know, as a young teenager kind of drew me in already kind of interested in things like, you know, comic books and Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that. It's just kind of like, oh, this is cool. And so, yeah, the image, the imagery of Maiden, I guess, kind of drew me in and, and as, well, as well as the music, as well as the music, yeah. of course. And it's quite interesting you mentioned Iron Maiden because on one of our earlier episodes, uh, both animation, I prophesied a love for a joint love, I must say, for Iron Maiden. But just kind of fast forwarding uh, ahead from, you know, a teenager getting exposed to Iron Maiden, where did that lead to Misery Index and what was the roots of Misery Index? Where, where did they form really? Okay, well, I guess I'll give you the accelerated version. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from there, from there, I just, you know, gravitated towards more extreme and heavy music. Death metal arrived, like, around the same time, 1988, 89. Became its own kind of genre, fell into that, and started playing death metal in the early 90s with Dying Fetus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was in Dying Fetus for about 10 years, playing that, you know, extreme stuff, brutal stuff, and then... Then in the late 90s, I got interested a little bit more in hardcore punk and grindcore and stuff. And I like the kind of real world, kind of visceral tack of it. Seemed a little bit more meaningful beneath the surface than some of the fantasy driven stuff of death metal. So I wanted to start crossing over a little bit, kind of in the napalm death tradition, I guess, to 
started a band in that style, and that's kind of where Misery Day Index came about in the early 2000s. And uh, since then, we've been kind of, you know, riffing on our own kind of style of death grind, increasingly death metal in the last couple of years, I guess, more, but we still have a grindcore kind of like tradition we we carry in our in in our music both i guess in the kind of like real world lyrics and stuff as well as stylistically we borrow a lot from that stuff but yeah that's kind of where we are now i guess okay and it's great that you kind of mentioned uh, the whole transition that you had or from you know dying fetus into misery index but what would if we if i had to put this across in a straightforward manner how would you define the purpose for misery index to exist uh it's just an ex- an outlet for my expression lyrical and music expression i mean i started the band with a friend who you know he and when the band kind of went full time it it kind of became my own thing and then you know since i guess you know, mark and adam in the band since 2005 or 6 so I could say it's an outlet for all of our you know musical expressions and it's just you know as a unit we function and and use misery index to to I guess make our mark in metal. <laughs> yeah and you know it's it's great you kind of talked us through that but just looking back it, we realized uh, it's been almost two decades that you've been doing uh, misery index and the way we look at it is you guys have cemented yourselves as one of the most consistent and reliable death metal acts currently so what keeps you going and the rest of the band also going i think we're lucky enough that we all kind of uh respect each other respect you know we we operate fully as a a new a unit which you know comes to to agreement on on all things like with songwriting with what we want to do as a band as far as touring and you know we 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 just kind of uh we have a good a good working unit here with uh Darren Mark Adam and myself and uh it's been the core since 2010 and and you know i i think we you know we we don't we're not really a full-time band like we used to be maybe years we don't do 200 shows a year anymore we just kind of uh we're more selective with things and we we songwrite at our own pace so i think that kind of lends like a little bit of like um longevity and and uh it takes the pressure off pressure off us to you know you know be something we're not so we just kind of let it come as it go let it come as it does and and uh and here we are apart from being reliable they're also one of the rare death metal bands that's really known for its lyrics uh so the question to you is what do you think makes death metal a suitable genre to spread any message or essentially to communicate with an audience um yeah that's like kind of a, the question i faced you know with the end of my tenure with dying fetus and it was like well this if i want to do death metal keep doing death but I, you know I, i think it's more important to have lyrics that are you know with substance about something and there's plenty of horrors in the real world that are you know everyday problems and and issues which which provide good lyrical fodder for for any for a death metal band and mm-hmm. i think you've seen you've seen more of that in the last decade i think it's become more of a thing but uh 
in the 90s, like death metal was death metal and punk and grindcore were on the other side. And they, they're the, that was this, the stuff that dealt, you know, with the real world issues. And I, I kind of wanted to bring that over to death metal, like in the, like, as I said, in the napalm death, old brutal truth kind of terrorizer kind of tradition. And, uh, and it just, it just works for us. I mean, we don't, we don't put the lyrics or politics before the music. The music's always like front and center. The first thing we do, and then the lyrics come after. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they don't define us either. Like uh, you know, also I mean, a lot of these lyrics I write most of the lyrics, so they kind of reflect a lot of my worldview too. So I don't. I think most of the other guys are kind of on board. You know, we all believe in basic themes of human rights and stuff like that. So that's kind of like where we where we approach it from. Um, let me go back to something that you said a bit earlier when uh, transitioning from Dying Fetus to Misery Index. You mentioned that uh, it was a lot of exposure to hardcore and to punk. Um, is the lyrical bent of Misery Index kind of seeped in those genres as such in any manner? Or um, is this just a play of all these various influences? I'd say part of it is, but part of it is shaped too by my own, you know, worldview and i bring a lot of that into it you know and a lot of what i've i read every day and and what impacts me what you know resonates and i think would make a good story to talk about in the lyrics so you know those kind of themes are or i think they're something everyone can relate to you know they're it's not just limited to a genre like punk or hardcore or death metal mm-hmm. as well and I think we talk about these themes in slightly abstract, you know, use a lot of imagery, allegory, metaphors, you know, metaphor, and and let the just enough so that the person who's reading them, you know, what death metal fans do read lyrics, you know, that they might, uh, you know, be able to see something of their own world in that and interpret their own way. All right. All right. Does it ever get frustrating to deliver a message through a song, considering the nature of death metal as a genre? Like, you know, half uh, it's it's largely growls, or it's just the fact that the instruments itself take so much of precedence in a performance. Or at a gig, I mean, come on, most people are just want to party out and, and headbang along. Yeah, we realize that, and we write with that in mind, too. And in the last few albums too we've gotten better you know enunciating and and being a little bit more clear with some of the some of the words rather than just garbling them it's just uh you know it's it's part of the whole like uh presentation i mean yeah people know the lyrics though even if they're at a show having a good time they're gonna you know sing along with the chorus and and it's just part of the the unifying, I guess, character of a of a song, you know, a good, well written chorus, and you know, it transcends like, you know, if it's sung cleanly or distorted vocals or however, it's like it has the same impact. You know? And you know, since you've spoken a lot about the lyrical aspect of the band, uh, what is the key message that you had, or that you? Were, while you were writing the lyrics for Rituals of Power? 
Uh, well, this one was kind of centered around, it's, you know, in recent years with the rise of these, you know, media, social media platforms and internet driven, like information and news sources, this kind of theme of fake news has come up and there's been talk of this so-called post-truth era that we live in now where everyone can create their own truth and just say everything else is fake and everyone's living in their own reality and own sort of like, um, you know, bubble. Uh, so it's kind of, I took that theme and, and, and decided to use it like, uh, across all the songs, some ways more clearly than other that kind of serve as a wake up call of, for, you know, for civilization, for the world, this, this is the kind of thing, which is really bad for, because if you can't agree on what reality is, then you can't have a discussion about, you know, you know, the public discourse about democracy, about anything is, is the sort of fundamental, you know, pillars of what, what how civilization functions is going to sort of crumble, you know, and, and it just breeds a lot of division and, and, you know, that's the theme that kind of, that informed the, the writing of the lyrics and it unfolded through the different uh, songs in different ways, I guess. Completely agree with you. I mean, um, out here in India, we're increasingly dealing with the menace of fake news. Um, it's not just a joke anymore. And there have been some serious, very serious ramifications from people choosing to believe what they think is the truth. Uh, does the United States share a similar sentiment? Yes, it's very much on the, on the, um, you know, it's a problem that needs to be dealt with. And a lot of the responsibilities in the hand, you know, there's just another the other issue is like there's too much power in the hands of of these media companies, companies like Facebook and Google. They have so much control over the means of communication about how we, you know, how we discuss. Uh, the most important things in our in our collective lives and and because we have to go through these channels and they're you know profit driven companies they're interested in making money they're not interested you know so much in making these tools work for public discourse and democracy so much as they are like just getting more and more people to sign up and more and more people look at advertising and fake news and sensationalist news drives advertising so there's a fundamental contradiction there with the with the way these companies work, and uh, you know they're they're too big for the for themselves, and they're they're American companies, and and the the right thing to do it would be for the U.S. government to to uh, to break them up and and allow other companies to come in and and help you know free up uh, free up some of this concentrated power they have. Or, may, or better yet, maybe even nationalize them. <laughs> <laughs> no, or not but, nationalize but, them, but, but somehow make them public or some, somehow give them up to I guess. accountability. Yes, yeah, so the great, yeah. great yeah, that's what you're... Day. <laughs> Transparency, yeah, accountability. Yeah. yeah, that's what we all wish for from corporates. <laughs> yeah. so, I, I mean, just, just from the whole discussion we're getting into at this point, uh, just tell us how involved are you or what's your view on like the current political landscape and how much of it has had an influence on your latest album or the upcoming album Rituals of Power? 
Uh, it's had a lot of influence. I mean, uh, you know, as I just kind of talked about with the post-truth kind of thing, I mean, rituals of power is like about how certain regimes of power throughout history, you know, have used control of information and controlling the narrative, the daily narrative, controlling and deciding what is true and what isn't true and, and all those sorts of things and how those power regimes use those use that power to control and and cement their own position so you know if unfortunately the, the things are in quite disarray in the u.s right now and you know we're not fans of the current president who should <laughs> not be named and, yeah for all you know he's listening into this call yeah <laughs> i mean that to me this that's almost it's like when that happens and you have someone like that elected, it's like, well, is democracy failing? You know, is somehow the popular vote, well, yeah, I guess he didn't win the popular vote, but the system itself, the way the votes are mm-hmm. counted, got Cal- him in there. Yeah. And the problems of it, of a two-party system and all this kind of, I mean, that's all like U.S. specific, but these are issues that every country deals with in their legislatures yeah, and, their yeah. par- and their parliaments. It's parliamentary democracy. It's, you know, it's like, how do you deal with populism? How do you deal with, you know, this reactionary politics to, you know, this is still like the long thread of globalization, like, you know, outsourcing of jobs and this kind of stuff. You know, the, all that kind of the disarray we're in right now is, is certainly funneled down to our, you know, our little record <laughs> in one way or another. And since you're talking about the record, do you believe that music or even art in general has a role in changing or educating people or the listeners regarding worldviews or opinions? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that music and art, you know, it's just it's it's fundamentally an expression of uh, a cultural expression of you know, peoples of individuals and and it's long been used as a tool for informing people about you know other ways of doing and living and thinking and yeah I think that it does have a it can have a especially if like you're look you know if anything that makes you think about something differently or look at something from a different perspective that you didn't think about before then my challenge is sort of like uh you know, cemented worldview you have a rigid kind of like one-dimensional worldview. If it, if it causes or if it sparks someone to you know open that up and start thinking about other ways and start thinking more holistically about issues and problems, then I guess yeah, it does have a kind of positive aspect that can be there. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about your creative process. Uh, you mentioned that the music comes first and then uh, after that is when the lyrics are penned. So what makes for a Misery Index riff or what makes for a song to sound like Misery Index? That's the first part of the question. And then secondly, when you are articulating your worldviews and penning them onto paper, writing lyrics, um, how do you decide what to talk about? Um, well, the first thing that when we write music, it's just a kind of reflection of our collective influences where we are in our lives. And, you know, you get inspiration from 
you know, the, the other music we listen to and and we, I mean, we, we, there's an idea, you know, okay, you know, what, what would a Misery Index song sound like? You know, what's a, I guess we wouldn't write a straight up power metal song or something, you know. With, <laughs> of course not. Yeah. And then, oh, this, this is where I'm at right now, songwriting, you know, it's just, okay, we know we, of course we have our own defined boundaries, I guess, of where we can go with our sound, but there's still a lot you can do in that world, so. If anything, we think it's become more refined, and you know, it's, this new album is a very compact kind of, you know, straight ahead, heavy riff-driven, big chorus-driven kind of record, and I, I think it's 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 representative of where we are now. And and as far as the lyrics, like, uh, you know, I started with that basic concept about truth and how it's changes throughout history and where it is today and and that theme i think is built into the first two songs and new salem and slightly on hammering the nails and rituals of power the title track and i disavow the three out well slight outliers i think are the choir invisible which is kind of about uh global uh, refugee crisis and immigration from the from the immigrants point of view <laughs> and uh and uh they always come back which is kind of like a sequel to the carrying call from the heirs of thievery album 2010 which is kind of like a fantasy kind of you know after life world after people kind of story where human beings like like uh, cockroaches persist after civilization decline, and and somehow manage to come back in in a sort of new uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's a kind of it's a kind of like a riff on on that post apocalyptic theme and naysayer, which is kind of uh, I, it's Marks. I I kind of wrote the lyrics with him, but it's kind of like a more personal kind of like calling out of of specific individuals who bring a kind of negative worldview to the table and but yeah that's kind of in a nutshell where the lyrics all kind of came from <laughs> okay um is 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 the entire writing process very cathartic for you in any manner yeah i mean the catharsis is when the album's done and you can just like sit back like because there's you know process of like about a year and a half or something with this one where it you know, through all the demos and refinement and the struggle to get the right tones for the production of the record, and then going through the mixes, which is tedious, and then finally saying, "Okay, this is the one," and then you and then you put it on the shelf and maybe listen to it a week later, and if it still sounds good, then yeah, that's where the catharsis comes from. <laughs> all right. All right, and just going back to what you were talking about, the writing. Uh, what's the writing process you guys follow? Do you all like each bring in different ideas and jam it out and create the song as it goes? Or is there one person kind of, do you write uh, the entire song and then each one adds their parts? How does it go? Well, we all write individually and then we, uh, you know, kind of bring it to the table for review by the other guys. And sometimes Mark will, or Darren will pick up on an idea and make recommendations. And 
Adam also takes the riffs and kind of puts drums through them and gives it a little bit of structure. And then it's kind of like then it enters a kind of cycle of revision based on all of our input. So, okay, lovely. Um, I know we've got limited time with you, so I'm going to start wrapping things up. Um, uh, on a very light note, I'm a bass player too. I play for a hardcore punk act from Bombay called the Riot Peddlers. So I must ask you this. How long did it take for you to get comfortable playing bass and doing vocals at the same time? And do you have any tips for that? Uh, it's hard to say. I was, but I mean, uh, I guess I started, you know, I guess it took me about two or three years. Oh, thank God. And I, was just, <laughs> I mean, to where I felt like, okay, I'm a bass player and I can, you know, play anything I, that needs to be played to play this kind of music that I'm playing at that, that moment. Then there was a second kind of learning phase with learning to sing and play, and that, that was a different kind of story. And and then, uh, but I've gotten now it's kind of like a symbiotic relationship, so it kind of works. So, but yeah, it comes in time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Jason, for your time. But we have one last question before we let you go. So yeah, we want to play one track from Rituals of Power that you feel defines the album. And why do you think we should play that track? Or what's the reason behind it? Uh, I guess uh, the title track, Rituals of Power, kind of, that sums it all up as far as the lyrics. And and I really like the kind of midsection where it opens up and has, you know, a kind of melodic tinge to it. And it's some of my favorite lyrics for the record, too, are in that, in that part. So <laughs> I guess that's one. Jason, thank you so much for your time. Uh, All right, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> soon. Okay, take care, guys. All right, thanks again. Cheers. Bye. Horns up. Yeah, 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 yeah
quite a deep interview oh man it, it was quite interesting just to hear his thoughts about the album i'm going to revisit the album again listen to it uh, and kind of see it from the framework of the context what he put it into us but either way from the initial listens it was quite an intense album fans of misery index and death metal in general death grind or so would enjoy it for sure it remains a solid album just like every other misery index album is they remain they continue to remain extremely reliable um i love the fact that he still believes that his music is an art form for him to go out and communicate and spread his message out to the world or spread the band's message out to the world which is great especially for a genre like death metal it remains uh, it remains a music that needs to have a statement attached to it and it's truly lovely to see bands continuing to do that and do that so well Yeah, I can't imagine what they're going to come out with in further material just with the current situation politically not only in the US but around the world what kind of influence it has in the next few years on the band definitely something to keep an eye out for. And I do wish that out here in India we continue to use music as a form of just communicating what needs to be said at times. We've tried to do that with the Riot Peddlers. I know a bunch of artists these days who do it. If, if there's a band that we haven't heard about, give us a shout out on Twitter at Horns Up Pod or reach out to me, Trend Crusher, and you can reach out to me at Asmo Annie. Okay, so that's a bit of a heavy episode this week, and heavy in terms of just the kind of topics that we discussed, uh, and also super heavy on the music side, right? 
Yeah. yeah. It's been quite intense. We've had a great week. Two episodes out this week, man. Yeah, uh, we also spoke to Sakis Tollis from Rotting Price. So if you haven't checked that interview out, do go back into the archives. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or on Google Podcasts and wherever else you want to choose to listen to your podcasts. We've got quite a few quirky ideas that we're going to try and experiment with, a couple of new guests, a couple of new formats that we want to try out on Horns Up in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. Until then, keep them horns up. Horns up.